Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching.
special hello to our kids. A couple announcements to start. First of all, a reminder to register for your December box. So, December box is going to be really beautiful, actually. We're going to include this book into everyone's box, The Way to the Manger. And it is an Advent devotional that goes through each day in Advent and has beautiful pictures and verses and really great questions and conversation starters. So that'll be in the book along with, of course, lots of fun activities, which we're not telling, right? It's a secret. Okay. Um, and then also a reminder to open this month's box if you haven't yet. A lot of ideas to um, think about gratitude and also fun activities. We've done a few at our house. And the theme is to see. So um, thinking about how we see God, how God sees us, what we see around us that we are grateful for, that God has given us. Um, I have Eloise here today. She's going to be my helper for our message for kids. She's going to read actually from this book that we have at our house that she pulled from her room called Gritty and Graceful. And it's, what does it say up here? 15 Inspiring Women of the Bible. So a little hint to our prophet today, 15 Inspiring Women of the Bible. Um, I'm going to give a little info about where God's people are at in this story before we share. So the Israelites were once again in trouble. Like we haven't heard that, right? They're in trouble and they're needing rescuing. We've been learning about prophets for the past, I don't know, four or five, six weeks. And it's pretty consistent that the people turn away from God and then they want to be saved and they want to be rescued. And in this situation, they have now spent 20 years as slaves under the ruler of Canaan. Um, so during this time, Deborah is a judge in Israel, and she is also a prophet, the prophet we're going to talk about today. And we know that prophets relay, rely, well, relay messages from God to his people. And prophets are also, it's very important that they are listening to God, that they are praying, that they are talking with God, in relationship with God, and that they're being still with God, right? So to be a prophet, that's what we need to do. We need to be close to God. Um, and also, like I said, she was a judge. So Deborah spent a lot of time being a judge, just as judges are today. She would help people end their disputes. People would come from all over to meet with her, which makes me believe she was well-liked and she was respected. And Weez, you read. I am Deborah. I was a prophet, a judge, a poet, and a warrior. One day, enemies threatened God's people. Our top soldier, Barak, was too afraid to fight them. But I wasn't afraid. I was ready. I led 10,000 soldiers into battle that day. I told the soldiers that a woman would win this battle and that God would deliver us. And because of my bravery and God's help, that's exactly what happened. God did great things for me, and I did great things for God. Mm. How does that make you feel, girls? <sighs> Often we hear about the men in the Bible, and today it's all about the women. God gave this prophet Deborah a task to tell a man named Barak that he was supposed to come to bring an army of 10,000 men together to go to defeat the Canaanite enemies who were enslaving God's people, the Israelites. So Deborah went and told Barak what he was supposed to do. And you know what he said? Judges 4.8 tells us, 
He says, I'll go, but only if you go with me. We've heard that before, right? Boys always need our help. Actually, you go ahead and read. And in, in the book, there's a little verse on the bottom, and it talks about, or it says what Deborah responded to Barak. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will de deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Mm. She's not only strong and wise, but she's also a really good leader because a good leader helps other people lead. So she responds by saying, you can do this. I will go with you. I will be alongside of you, Barak. And then this verse also talks about the commander of the, the Canaanite army, which is Sisera. It ends with, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So listen for that part. So Barak and Deborah lead the Israelite army into Canaan and totally defeat it, of course, with God's help. Defeat the whole army except for Sisera. Now Sisera is sitting in his chariot looking around going, where is everybody? They, they're all gone. He gets scared. He jumps out of his chariot and goes to run and hides in a tent. Well, in this tent is a woman named Jael. Jael is an Israelite who also knows God and knows that this man must be defeated in order for God's people to be free, for God's people to be able to rest. So she captures him. She captures him. It was all part of God's plan, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. In this story, we have two very brave women, Deborah and Jael. Deborah was a leader that a lot of people knew. She was a judge. She was well-known, well-liked, what we talked about. And Jael, we don't know much about, but maybe not as many people knew her. Either way, both of them were brave. Both of them acted and followed God. Deborah loved her people and felt so connected to them and wanted what was just for them. She was committed to serving them and leading them out of the trouble that they were in, that they had gotten themselves in. The Israelites trusted and respected her because of her re reputation, her strength, and her wisdom. Deborah's faith allowed her to respond to this tremendous challenge. She knew her God was big. Who else in history have we learned about that shows courage and bravery to bring justice and change? Can we think of some? I know we just talked about Rosa Parks this week. Anyone else come to mind? Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman. Today I was reading about Coretta Scott King in my devotional. These women, their faith was strong, just like Deborah. God gave them the bravery and the boldness that they needed to bring change. God gives us what we need to be brave. Sometimes in kids' community, we take time to wonder about a story. Eloise, what do you wonder about this story? I wonder what would have happened if Deborah said no. What if Deborah would have said no? That's really good. What if she wasn't brave enough? Ooh, a lot of things would have changed. Her bravery affected everyone in the story. Or think about Rosa Parks. What if she wouldn't have done what she did? Her bravery affected people for years. Well, that makes me feel like I want to be extra brave. What if I say no when really I know that God can make me brave? God can make us brave. But how often do we sometimes say, oh, I don't think I can do that, right? And actually, that leads me into what I want to ask you guys this week to take time to think about. How will you live like Deborah? Will you be brave? 
And where will your braveness come from? Your life can reflect the special calling that God has for you. You can bring his saving power, his justice, his love, his kindness, his care to the people that need it most. It starts with listening to God and talking to God, praying with God, and also taking time to see our theme this month, to see. See what's around you. See who God is. Take time to think about and see who God sees you as. Who is he making you to be? And then what are some challenges in your neighborhood or community or school where you can make an impact? No matter your gender or age, you can make a difference. We have another book to share today that's a favorite at our house. It's called I Am One by Susan Verde, Verde and illustrated by Peter Reynolds. I Am One, a book of action. Go ahead, please. How do I make a difference? It seems like a tall order for one so small. But beautiful things start with just one. One seed to start a garden. One stroke to start a masterpiece. One note to start a melody. One step to start a journey. One brick to start breaking down walls. And I can speak one gentle word to start a conversation. I can use my one soft voice to start a friendship. I can perform one act of kindness to start a connection. I can share one tender hug to start caring. I can light one candle to start leading the way. I can make one drop in the water to start ripples that become swells, then waves. Traveling over oceans, across borders and boundaries, landing on distant shores, to start a chain reaction, inspire a movement, and make a change. I am one, and I can take action. We are each one, and we can take action. One by one, we can make a difference. Because one is all it takes to start something beautiful. How is God asking you to be the one that he has made you to be? sing this over our kids. May God give you eyes to see all that is good, all that is good. The courage for anything. May you be strong, may you be strong. May God give
good morning, Awaken. Uh, my name is Mike, if we haven't met, and uh, for those of you that do know me, you, you might notice I'm wearing a hat, which I don't typically do, which means that I have a friend to introduce to you in just a moment. Um, if you are new, want to say welcome to you. We're really glad that you've joined us. Uh, if you can and would like to uh, connect with us, there's a spot on our website. You can go on our front page, click on the I'm New button, and that'll lead you to a little page to fill out, and that'll go to our uh, director of community life, Kathy Solomon, and she will get in touch with you. We'd love to know that you were here. Um, I just have two quick things to let you know about that are coming up. Um, so Advent is coming. It's right around the corner, and we're going to do something new this year. We're going to do an Advent kickoff, uh, and we're going to light a Christmas tree, friends. So we've got a permit. We're going to block the street out in front of the church, and we're going to purchase a giant Christmas tree and light that thing up on November the 29th to kick off Advent. So it's an outdoor event. It'll be at 5 30, uh, I'm pretty sure that's the right time, 5.30 p.m., um, wear your masks, we'll be outside, and we'll light the Christmas tree and sing a few Christmas carols to kick off the Advent season together. And I'll also let you know that we are going to, um, we're having a Christmas concert this year, which will also be virtual and streamed live. It'll be Tides of Winter, December the 18th, so mark that down on your calendar, uh, keep that night open. The other thing I want to let you know about is something I'm very, very excited about. I've been uh, working with a small team of people on, uh, I've been charged with uh, really kind of looking at how Awaken um, engages missionally, both locally and globally. And so this team has been helping me do that. And we are in a unique position. Uh, Awaken is one of the most generous churches I've ever been a part of. And we have the opportunity, uh, long story short, we have $15,000 that um, needs to be invested on behalf of Awaken in two areas, either COVID relief and or um, race and justice and reconciliation and anti-racism. And so these two areas are what these dollars were given to. And instead of us deciding where this money should go, we're actually going to ask you where you think it should go. So here's here's what we're doing. It's called 1553. We've got $15,000. We're going to do five grants of $3,000 each. And um, we're, we're hoping that the hopes and dreams of God are alive in you and you're connected to people who are doing good work in the world related to those two topics. And so today on our website, you'll be able to go there and link to the missional grants application page. And so you can apply on behalf of someone that you know, an organization or a ministry or people that are doing good work in the world in those two areas and present your case for why you think they should get one of these five grants of $3,000. And that will go out into the world on behalf of Awaken and the people who gave it in this community uh, and in the name of Jesus. So it's pretty exciting. November 15th to December 15th. You have one month to do your research and present a case for your ministry of choice to get these resources. So pretty cool. Um, if you have any questions, email me at micah at awakenwest7th.com. Now, today is Deborah, which is going to be awesome. We, if you've not noticed, we've had a lot of ladies leading us, which I'm so excited about. And um, we're going to have my good friend Judy Peterson uh, teach this morning and give this message. And I want to just give one caveat before I do that. Um, next week, when we're together live, I'm actually going to preach Deborah again. Um, because I thought, well, I'd love to have a, a woman teach this passage because they will see things that I won't see. And our team said, yeah, that's a great idea, Micah. But Lest, you, lest anyone think that you didn't want to teach, Deborah, I'd like a guy to get excited about teaching a woman in Scripture. And they're absolutely right. So we're just going to do it two weeks in a row, and we get Judy this week, and I'm going to take a crack at it next week when we're together live. So would you please welcome my dearest friend, Judy Howard Peterson. Thank you, Micah, and good morning, Awaken. I am delighted to be invited to speak about Deborah, 
I have to say that as a woman, oftentimes I am invited to speak about the women in scripture. And so I am additionally delighted, Micah, that you are also going to speak about Deborah next week, and I will be listening in to see what you have to say. And because you are also preaching, I feel like I can give a little more background to Deborah because I know, well, people are going to get a full story of Deborah. So let me start with this this morning. One of the very first Bible verses that I learned as a child was Psalm 23. You probably know it. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup, it overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. First thing you should know, my mother's name is Shirley and I thought she was going to follow me all the days of my life. Second thing. This is one of the most beloved verses of scripture. It's been tucked into graduation cards, carried into battle. It hangs on hospital walls around the world because it brings deep comfort to us as people to know that there is a God who cares about us. And in the culture of animal husbandry that the the scripture is written in and to, in the world of flocks and herds, um, this language, it makes a lot of sense to people. Because you see, the condition of the sheep, they knew it was a testimony to the shepherd. When the sheep are well cared for and fed and watered and led, people are like, ooh, this must be a good shepherd. When the sheep are not afraid of dark valleys and are eating calmly, even amidst enemies, people are like, ooh, this must be a good shepherd. Similarly, in the culture of the ancient Near East, they believed that the condition of the people was considered a barometer, a measurement of the greatness of the God they they worshipped or followed. If people had a lot of offspring, flocks and herds, access to land and water, surrounding nations were like, ooh, they must have a great God. If people were able to conquer enemies, gain more territory, win military battles, surrounding nations would be like, ooh, this must be a powerful God. This makes sense to me, even though this isn't exactly my language. Because on a pet lover scale, if I see a dog tied in a yard skinny full of mange, I wonder about the character of the owner. And on a people lover scale, well, I... I, I want a God who battles against what battles against us. A battle-winning God seems good to me. And it is a battle story that, that I've been invited to preach this morning. Our story is found in the fourth and fifth chapters of the book of Judges. And, and God's people are in up against enormous battle odds. Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, and Sisera, the commander of the opposing army, have 900 chariots and weapons made of iron, while in a much bigger army. And Deborah, who is the current leader of Israel, a prophet and judge, 
Well, she has heard from the Lord, as prophets are known to do, that if the military leader of Israel will gather just 10,000 of his men and go down into the valley and go up against the Canaanites, that God will fight on their behalf and deliver a victory, a battle victory, into their hands. With a few nuances, which I'm going to get into later, this is exactly what transpires in our story. Complete and total take-no-prisoners military victory. And while Sisera, the commander of the enemy army, does initially escape, God weaves an unlikely hero into the story, so there are no lingering doubts about God's ability to absolutely overcome the oppressor. Now, if I were to parabolize this story, you know, we preachers, we love to do that. If I were to turn this story into a parable for us this morning, this is what I would say. God is more powerful than whatever you are up against today. And if you will get into close proximity to God, if you will listen to God's ways and then follow them, if you will bravely stand up against what has stood against you, God is going to fight on your behalf until you are liberated from every last thing that oppresses you. And remember, God is not your only ally in this. God has woven people into your life that are going to be there to help you as well. Don't forget, there are unlikely allies in your life. I love this. I wish I was preaching just this today. I believe this. I believe in this God who battles on our behalf against everything that oppresses us. I believe this. And if this is all you need this morning and the only reminder you need this morning, that there is a good shepherd who is deeply invested in the, the condition of your life, I want to assure you that we have a good shepherd, Jesus. And, and Jesus, the good shepherd, will go to great lengths to care for you and to fight battles with you. This is good news. And really, you could shut me off. But for those of you who are wanting or willing to dig a bit deeper into this story, I've got a lot to tackle with you in a very, very short time. Let me jump in a, a bit into the story or the context more of Deborah. The story of Deborah and the battle against the Canaanites is actually not a parable. The story presents itself as part of a historical narrative of God's people the Israelites. The book of Judges, where this story is found, was written about a time in uh, Israel's actual history that is defined by both chaos and collapse. The people of Israel, God's people, those who had had the privilege of a firsthand experience of being delivered from Egypt, have now all died. And a new generation is now living in the land. And as their shared memory of of this miraculous God and this deliverance fades, their commitment to God is fading as well. And they, the people of God, because they're not remembering their living God so much, began to adopt idols of the land in which they are living. It says in Judges chapter 2, after that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served idols. 
the idols of Baal. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. Now, the stories that we find after they have left God all follow a particular cycle or pattern. The Israelites forget God, and then they begin to worship other gods and idols. And then because they're taking a piece of wood or a trinket of gold into battle instead of a living God, they are defeated and then become subject to oppression, and then they fall into moral decline. When the people of God who are now oppressed and in decline, realize how bad things have gotten. And when they are longing for rescue, they remember the living God. They put the living God back into their membership or want to. And so they cry out to God for help. Then through the intervention of a charismatic leader, this book of the Bible calls them judges. The people of God are then led into military battles where they defeat their enemies and oppressors. Now, for a time after their victories, the, the people of God are also led back into, into a relationship, a real relationship with a living God. And then after a bit, they would forget God again, and then the cycle repeats over and over. I could be hard on them. But this cycle, well, it makes some sense to me too. Who doesn't know this cycle? God provides, and we're all about remembering God, the God who provides for a minute or two or a season in some and life. Life happens. God gets on the back burner. We start to rely on other things that we carry into our lives until things go badly. And then these other things, well, they don't seem to be saving us. So we cry out to God for help. And most of us, I mean, probably because we've heard the biblical stories, we're, we're quick to apply the equation that we find in this type of story. I mean, they, they sinned and got away and then they, they cried out and got back. And, and so things must have gone poorly for me, we think, because I was bad. That, that's why life was hard. I was bad. Or if I'm good, or if I add God back in, all things will go better. Because of these stories, we believe in this sort of equation, leave God and lose, worship God and win. Doesn't that sound like such a classic preacher line? This is, in fact, the story that is recorded repeatedly throughout the early history of God's people. This is why, in a quick reading of this story, we develop this equation, worship God and win, leave God and lose. It's precisely because of this that I want to dig a little deeper today, because I do believe a shallow reading of any of the biblical text can and often has the potential to create great damage. So let's dig into the equation for just a minute before we dig into Deborah. I'm sure you have all met someone for whom the equation has broken down. Perhaps you've even seen in your own life that things don't always tally up as neatly as the little preacher slogan. I mean, personally, I've seen people who worship God win, and I have also seen people who worship God lose. Vice versa. I have seen people who leave God win, and I have seen people who leave God lose. When you and I draw quick equations from what is a much more complicated story, oftentimes people get hurt. People like equate their loss then with God's punishment. This can leave grieving people wondering if God is good. 
This can leave injured people being blamed for their injuries. Or on the other hand, when we apply this quick equation to more complicated stories, people can begin to equate their gain with God's blessing. They can turn God into a vending machine where, where we're constantly trying to figure out what, what the right change. This can lead to materially blessed people believing that God favors them and, and that, well, they can assume that those with less are that way, well, because God. Quick equations are always a bit dangerous. There is a second lesson I think we should perhaps avoid um, in the quick application of this text um, to our contemporary context. Um, In the Old Testament, stories tend to draw a direct line between God's favor and military victory. Even a very quick read-through of the scriptures, and you will see that they they attribute military wins to God's favor and military losses to God's judgment. One of the reasons I would caution us from turning historical scriptures into parables is because I think it's important we contend with this actual recorded history so that we can see how it has and how it continues to influence our contemporary life when we draw a direct line between God's favor and military victory. I think we should reckon with our real history so we can see how we feel about that. And I think reckoning with our real history is important all the time. I believe, in fact, one of the reasons we are where we are in terms of racial reckoning in, 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 our, in, in our country is because we haven't been honest about the brutality of our own history. I want you to be honest about the brutality of scripture. I want you to learn this habit because I, I want us to incorporate that habit into our life. Uh, Our colonization by genocide, our wealth by slavery, our maintenance of power by white supremacy, without honesty, if we simply parabolize our actual history in ways that bring us comfort and allow us to skirt around the necessary wrestling and necessary work, well, anyways, we'll just keep staying where we are. If we parabolize our history, we we start saying things like, well, we are God's chosen people and the Americas is our promised land. This is what happens. That's the parable. (laughs) We're pilgrims escaping religious persecution and we're a city on a hill. That's a parable. We brought Jesus to those who never would have heard. That's a parable that covers up the necessary wrestling and the necessary work that needs to be done and the honesty we need to have about the fact that we enslaved people. If you work hard enough, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh, these parables. Let's get honest about our history. White people were able to largely pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Or people who had boots were largely able. But if we just parabolize and are not honest, we just gloss over things. I think it's important for us to look at our history honestly. So that we don't parabolize it in ways that are comforting to some but actually cause harm to others. That happens in our real history, and it happens when we're not honest about the history of our text. In the book of Judges, in the story of Deborah, we are reading a historical story that details God instructing God's people to take up arms against an enemy and to destroy every last one of them. This is recorded history. 
And it makes me very uncomfortable, not only because I'm a pacifist, but also because I know this historical text can be reapplied to contemporary conflicts. Because we say, well, if it happened this way, then it can happen this way again. There are human enemies. God can be on our side and God can want us to destroy all our other human enemies. So can we navigate this text honestly and then not reapply it? Is there a way to do this? I think so. At the time, the early books of scripture are written. Large populations of people were nomadic, and it's a season of constant tribal disputes. The ability to protect your flocks and herds and gain and hold onto your land is of the utmost importance to this people. When people pray to their gods or sacrifice to their idols, this is one of the primary things they're praying for or sacrificing for. Therefore, I believe this is the effective language that God is using in order to speak to them. So when God wants to communicate to God's people, as well as to the surrounding people, that Yahweh is more powerful than their idols, a God above the other gods, God is using a language they understand. Because God is never just speaking to hear God's self speak. God is communicating. Military victory as a testimony to who had the most powerful God is the language of this people. But this does not mean that military victory is God's preferred language. It's just that God finds it profitable to speak in the language people prefer. Let me offer you two more quick examples so that this can become clear. Do I think blood sacrifice is the language of God? I don't. God says, I do not delight in the blood of bulls, but in a broken and contrite heart. But you see, the blood of bulls sacrificing flesh to the gods, it was the preferred language of the people at that time. And God prefers to speak in languages people understand. Do I think God needed Jesus to die so that God could love people again? No. God loved people before God sent Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. But I think Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, especially the identification with the Passover lamb, was the language of the Jewish people. And God is wanting to communicate God's love God's redemptive possibilities, what God is actually doing in a way that the people God is communicating with will understand. And military conquest, it's the language that's being used in the book of Judges, in the story of Deborah, to communicate that Yahweh is a God above all the other gods and idols, as well as to make clear that God is continually investing in the condition of the people of Israel. This language, it's used throughout the whole Old Testament. And, and in our story today, because it's the language of the people. But I believe it's so important for us to understand, especially at this time in history, when the world, our world, is quick to label other people as enemies, and when religious people are so quick to claim whose side God is on, I think it's really important, uh, before we dig into Deborah, 
that military might and conquest, that we understand that, that, that this is not the message that's being spoken. This is the language that's being used to speak the message. Let me say that again. Military might and conquest is not the message that's being spoken, but the language being used to speak the message. The message that life is better when you trust in a living God rather than in the idols of this world. Now, now that we have an honest context, and we're perhaps a bit more clear about the larger message that God is hoping to communicate through our prophet and judge, Deborah, through military language. Let's look at Deborah. In the fourth chapter, God picks Deborah as the prophet and leader to lead the people of Israel through this next period of communication with God. We find her sitting under the shade of a palm tree, looking out over Israel, clearly aware that things are not going well. The Israelites are in the part of the cycle where the people have forgotten God, gone their own way, gotten used to worshiping idols, and are now being oppressed by Jabin, king of the Canaanites. Judges 4.4. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. Now, I want us to be clear this morning that there is no hint in this text that Deborah's gender was in any way a problem or even alarming to the people she was leading. The text does not say that a great craziness happened and God picked a woman to lead. No. The text introduces Deborah in the same way the text has introduced the two prior judges by offering a bit of their biography. Ehud was left-handed. Gideon will be introduced later as the weakest from the weakest tribe. Deborah is introduced as the wife of Lapidoth. This takeaway about Deborah is very important to me. Not that God is highlighting a woman, but that her introduction into the story is so normal. A woman leading God's people is normal. Deborah's leadership is a normal development in the story of God. In fact, Deborah's strong and fiery female leadership is even highlighted by God as desirable. Deborah is described as the wife of Lapidoth. It could be that she's married to Lapidoth. But it could also be translated as woman of Lapidoth. This introduction could be referring to where she comes from and not who she's connected to. Some have even argued that it's possible that God is normalizing partnering with a single woman whose identity is not found in relationship to a man, but has an identity in her own. She's a woman of Lapidoth. The phrase could also, woman of Lapidoth, could also be a description of Deborah's character. The word Lapidoth means torch or lightning. So, so the descriptor could be saying that Deborah is a fiery woman. Wouldn't it be awesome if we would normalize God partnering with fiery single women, even highlight them in our stories? Well, in contrast to the potential ambiguity about Deborah's marital status, which, of which we cannot actually be sure, her role as prophet and judge are actually very clear. As a prophetess, it is made clear that she is someone who has partnered with God so intimately that she hears from and can speak on behalf of God. And again, according to the text, perfectly normal for a woman to hear from God and then speak on behalf of God. And she is a judge. 
And while all the other judges in this book were leaders um, mostly in military battles, Deborah is mentioned as also being a judge in the sense of adjudicating disputes. The Israelites would go to her when they wanted justice or guidance. Deborah is actually the only judge in the entire book who operates as a judge in the way that Moses had said a judge should operate, as a person who would teach God's commands, inform people how they should live, and then what they should do to resolve the conflict between parties. Deborah is the only judge who is mentioned in the entire book of Judges in in this teaching and conflict-resolving way. The other judges, they seem to have all left adjudicating disputes behind in favor of military conquest and power. I do wonder if God is speaking to how normal this is too, how normal our tendency is to want to fight it out rather than work it out, and how rare it is to have strong, fiery leaders who use their leadership to resolve rather than create conflict. Normal. The surprise in the story is not that Deborah, possibly a fiery single woman, is a prophetess leading Israel, nor that she is an arbiter similar to Moses. This is seen as normal. The twist in the story is that she's directly involved in going to battle because in the ancient world, this actually was a purely masculine role. Placing a woman in this role is actually meant to intrigue the hearer of this story in the same way a left-handed Ehud, because people fought with their right, or the weakest member of the tribe, uh, Gideon, is picked. Who picks the weakest? Uh, It's meant to set up the message that, that this God, Yahweh, is so powerful that Yahweh can use any given set of circumstances or biology or biography. Hear me. Yahweh can use any given set of circumstances, biology or biography. Normalize that. Deborah sitting under the palms, looking out over the oppression of the Israelites, receives a word from God that it's time to go to battle. She calls to Barak, the military leader, to tell him, take 10,000 men and lead them into battle. Deborah informs Barak that she will then lead the commander of the opposing army, Sisera, and his troops into Barak's hands. Now, some people have said, that God has Deborah leading because there were no men around to lead. Let's just take a moment and take the text at its word. There is, in fact, a great military leader, Barak. He's going to be mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, great military leader, whom God could have chosen to lead Israel, but did not. So let's just put this argument that God only uses women when there are not men around to rest. God didn't choose a woman to lead because there were no qualified men to do so. It's just that God doesn't always choose men to lead. Sometimes God chooses women. And in this case, which is again treated as normative, rather than being called a great craziness, the military leader even says that he will not go to battle without her. Now, some would say this is because Deborah is viewed as a judge in the same pattern as Moses, as I've mentioned And while Moses didn't go into battle, while he remained present to it, watching over it, arms raised above it, the people of God were assured victory. Barak says, if you'll go with me, I will go. But if you don't go, I won't go. I don't believe Barak is balking at or resisting Deborah's leadership. I think he's relying upon it. 
He wants her hands raised above it, just like Moses. He's wanting a little bit of reassurance that God is watching over this battle, and I don't blame him. The Canaanites had chariots and chainmail and arrows and were and way more warriors. The imbalance of Canaanite resources and power, it's setting up this classic impossible scenario for God to be the God above every other idol one could rely upon. Who else could win this but God? Deborah says, certainly I will go. But because of the course you are taking, Barak, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Cicero into the hands of a woman. Now, Deborah is correcting Barak. What course is Deborah correcting? I think it's this, that Barak thinks that God is somehow more connected to Deborah or Deborah more connected to God than to him. If you go with me, then God will come with us. The reason I think this is the course correction is because in verse 14, when when Deborah gives the actual battle charge to Barak, this is what it says. Go this day, um, go, this is the day, the Lord delivers Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Sometimes we do need a reminder that God is not just with those we think are super holy. God goes with all of us. It's a good course correction. The presence of God will go before Barak, but the honor will not be Barak's. The text says it will go to a woman. Of course, it's easy to assume that Deborah is the woman to whom the honor will go, but this is a good story. And all good stories have little breadcrumbs leading to plot twists. Verse 11, now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'ananim near Kadesh. Now, likely this means nothing to you. Clearly, I can barely even um, say the words. But remember how I told you that Deborah was a judge like Moses? This text is making a connection in the language of its original hearers. Now, there are relatives of Moses coming into this story. Dun-dun! What is God up to? Barak goes, as Deborah has instructed, with just 10,000 men and no chariots. And when Sisera, the military commander for the Canaanites, hears that Barak is on the move, he gathers his entire army plus 900 chariots in possible scenarios. Again, if God doesn't, all will be lost. In the language of the people, this impossible situation is creating all this necessary tension to see, is God really a God above all gods? It's then that Deborah, this fiery woman, I'm imagining with her arms raised, taking the full stature that God had normalized for a a woman leader, she says this, go this day, the Lord delivers Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? That day, that very day, the entirety of Sisera's army is routed and Sisera flees on foot and makes his way to the tent of Jael. Remember, the wife of Hebar the Kenite, the relative of Moses. And Jael goes out to meet Sisera and invites him in with the words, oh, don't be afraid. And because men often underestimate the power of women, Sisera is not afraid of Jael. And he comes into her tent and she gives him milk to drink and covers him with a blanket. And Sisera says, if anyone comes, lie for me. Tell them I'm not here. As soon as he's asleep, Jael, in a very gruesome scene, goes and gets a tent peg and a hammer. 
the suspense of the story. So when the music comes in, then she pounds it through uh, Sisera's temple and she becomes the hero of the story. Chapter five, which is Deborah's song recounting this battle, some believe it's some of the earliest recorded biblical texts, concludes with these words, most blessed of women, BJL, the wife of Hebar the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent pig, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, he, there he fell, dead. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariot delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Are they not finding and dividing the spoils, a woman or two for each man? Colorful garments as plunder for Sisera, colorful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck, all this plunder. What we normalize and what we contextualize in the scripture matters. I have told you, I believe God caring for God's people and tending to them in practical ways should be normalized. I have told you that I don't believe worship and win, leave and lose should be normal. I think we should normalize that, that God is more powerful than all other gods and idols in our world and is worthy of our faith and trust. And I have told you that I don't believe that human enemies and military conquest as a way of discerning God's favorites should be considered normal. I have told you that I believe we should normalize reckoning with our honest history and we should avoid normalizing the parabolizing of history to keep ourselves comfortable. I have told you that women, fiery single women, leading the people of God should be normalized along with the desire to resolve conflict rather than create it. And I want to be clear that even though I want to normalize a woman being a hero of the story, I don't believe we should ever normalize violence. Now, before I close today, I want to highlight just one more thing that is normalized in the book of Judges. It is this. As the treatment of women went in the book of Judges, so went the standing of the nation of Israel as a moral leader. We can see in the passage that I just read from Judges 5 that surrounding nations considered women part of the spoils that they could simply divide up among themselves. But the book of Judges does not begin by treating women that way. The book of Judges begins with a woman who is named. She is Othniel's wife, Aksa, who makes a request for land and is given it, expanding the territory of God's people by land with two springs on it. The book of Judges continues by normalizing women leading God's people through the story of Deborah, and then ascribes hero status to a woman through the story of Jael. But as the book of Judges progresses, Israel begins to take on not only the idols of their neighbors, but also the way they treat women, spoils of war that can be divided up. 
increasingly women are treated as objects and with increasing violence. And by the end of the book of Judges, a woman is raped all night and then cut into 12 pieces and sent into the 12 tribes of Israel. She is divided among God's people as a witness to how far away the people of God have become. I wonder if we want to normalize this lesson as well. Because I believe this is language that we can understand and a formula that is still meant to inform our lives. That the way we care for those we could overpower says a lot about our morality. When we dismember the most vulnerable, when we divide those we can conquer, it is a clear indicator of just how far we are from God. I don't believe any of us need a translator to hear how clearly Christ speaks this truth. How we care for the vulnerable has to matter among us. May this truth be normalized. May it inform us how we should live. And may it be a clear guide um, to how we are going to resolve our conflicts. May we remember this Christ who normalizes um, bringing people that would be vulnerable into membership so that we never come to a place where we dismember others, especially the vulnerable. And perhaps in remembering Christ, even when we arrive at a place where we I don't know where we've labeled people enemies. Maybe if we remember Christ, we'll normalize that we could love our enemies too. It's my prayer that your community would name those who are vulnerable among you. That you would affirm that, that, that with God, circumstances and biology and biography do not determine who gets to lead. And that, that may you come to find out that God has already woven unlikely heroes into your storyline. And may when the entirety of your story is told, may your care for the vulnerable be a testimony to your intimacy with God. In Jesus' name. one more song together.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat of this, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. In a world where bloodshed is normal, this is different. It's a gift and it will end all bloodshed. So whenever you drink of it, remember, remember me, who I was, what I've taught you, how to live, what's normal. So this table that we come to, it's the table of the Lord, it's not the churches, though we've tried to make it so. And so it's made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come if you have a little bit of faith, a lot of faith. <laughs> uh, if you've been here often or not for a long time or ever before, if you've tried to follow and you've failed, come. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So I invite you to come, not because I invite you or the church invites you, but the resurrected Christ invites you to come and be known and be fed, to be put back together, to be sent out into the world for love and for hope and for healing. 
So as you take the bread, I invite you to hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat, my friends. And as you take the cup, I'd invite you to hear these words. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Grateful to my friend Judy for her voice in our community, uh, in my own life. A lot to think about. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, amen. We'll see you next week live. The link will be in the Awaken Weekly. Hope to see you there. www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter Awaken Community See you next time